This is the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Had a lot of emails lately uh, requesting a discussion on issues of fluid and electrolytes, and we've already done a podcast on potassium uh, abnormalities. And so this podcast, I want to focus a little bit more on sodium, problems with hyponatremia or low sodium, and problems with hypernatremia or a high sodium. And in subsequent podcasts, and deal with some more of the issues regarding fluid and electrolytes, regarding different types of crystalloids and colloids. No matter where you work, it really seems like problems with sodium metabolism, both uh, sodium being elevated and uh, uh, depressed, are relatively common. And for that reason, uh, we'll start initially with a discussion of some of the the things regarding hyponatremia, or a low sodium level. In perhaps its most severe manifestation, as far as symptoms go, when a patient has a low sodium, it can manifest itself as something called a hyponatremic encephalopathy. I remember seeing a board question once where a patient who um, had a seemingly minor head injury was admitted to the hospital, and subsequently um, their fluids were managed such that the patient developed almost an iatrogenic hyponatremia, and there was a deterioration of the patient's mental status. And in the solution of that question, the authors were pointing out the fact that when you have hyponatremia, you can have edema or swelling or what we call, what we call fluid shifts, uh, and that would result in, in some cerebral edema and, and, and hence the, the change in that particular patient's mental status. Um, hyponatremic encephalopathy is, is typically a, a syndrome that consists of hyponatremia and central nervous symptoms. And, and usually this includes symptoms such as headaches, emesis, uh, nausea, and weakness. In the United States, Europe, and Japan, the major causes of hyponatremic encephalopathy include misuse of diuretics, improper postoperative fluid management, and self-induced water intoxication. And we see hyponatremia relatively common in our postoperative surgical patients. Postoperative, uh, among postoperative adults, about 1% will have uh, hyponatremia, and about 20% of that 1% will have a hyponatremic encephalopathy develop. Now, in the past, the major emphasis has been placed on the duration and magnitude of hyponatremia as important factors in whether somebody was going to have any kind of CNS injury from the hyponatremia. But more recent data in, say, perhaps 10 years has suggested neither the duration nor the magnitude of the hyponatremia is really correlated strongly with the amount of CNS injury. In very severe cases of hyponatremia, uh, for instance, a sodium level of 120 or less, the patient may have an associated mortality rate of 60%. And uh, certainly having a sodium level of 120 is going to result in some profound complications and some of those potentially life-threatening. But also you have to be mindful that in order to develop a, uh, a medical condition with a sodium of 120, typically patients will be uh, with several medical problems, and sometimes it's the culmination of those medical problems that result in such a high mortality rate with a sodium level of that magnitude. The signs and symptoms of hyponatremia are going to depend really on how low is the sodium and how rapidly uh, did the hyponatremia condition, uh, condition develop. If the sodium goes to a reasonably low level, but the development was rather insidious, people have an amazing ability to be adaptive and, and may not be very symptomatic. On the contrary, somebody whose sodium level 
isn't as markedly depressed, say, you know, isn't 116, but may be down to, say, 124, 125, and it develops uh, more rapidly, that's a patient who is more likely to uh, be uh, symptomatic. I started the podcast by telling you about a a board question I've seen years ago while studying for my boards in general surgery of someone who had a seemingly minor head injury, got placed on inappropriate uh, IV fluids overnight, and subsequently their sodium uh, became less, and the patient had changes in their mental status, and that was due to um, the development of cerebral hypertension and, and even potential herniation. With the process that's going on there is that this really gets down to the idea of osmosis. You'll remember from high, high school biology that osmosis is really uh, the movement of water uh, across a semipermeable membrane from an area of um, low solute concentration to high solute concentration. Sounds like a big kind of an egghead type description, but it is it is just high school biology. When the serum sodium level drops in the plasma, sodium is the most um, uh, osmotically active particle uh, in the extracellular fluid. So when the sodium levels drop, that pulls water into the cell. Now, if you're talking about a kidney cell, it may not be too much of a problem. If you're talking about a muscle cell in your arm, probably not too big of a problem. But when water begins to shift from the extracellular space into, say, for instance, cells of the brain, that causes those cells to swell. If all the swells of the brain are swelling, that's going to create swelling of the brain. Swelling of the brain causes cerebral hypertension, and that is what we know is very problematic and can result in in changes in the patient's mental status and, in its worst-case scenario, um, uh, herniation. Herniation with brainstem compression is it's a fatal problem and something that um, we should aggressively try to avoid. Now, how we go about diagnosing hyponatremia seems rather self-evident. You get a serum, a serum level, and um, it tells you, obviously, that your sodium is low. But you need to kind of dissect that a little bit further to try to get more information uh, about what, what's the actual etiology or cause of the hyponatremia. How you further evaluate this is that you want to check the um, osmolality of the serum, uh, also get a urinalysis, and and obviously incorporate that with your physical examination. This seems to be pretty low-tech, and it would seem reasonably obvious. But again, as I said, hyponatremia as well as hypernatremia are two conditions that we see quite a bit of in, in the intensive care unit for a variety of reasons. And a lot of times when you're beginning to make rounds and patients got a depressed uh, sodium level, it doesn't really seem that a lot of times the house staff is, is, is pursuing uh, what we need to do to try to figure out why the sodium is, is low or the sodium is high. So certainly follow up with the urinalysis, and obviously we've done a physical exam on the patient. The first thing I like to do is really look at the uh, serum osmolality, and the serum osmolality typically is between 280 and 320. And there's good reasons why you don't want to go too much above 320. Uh, but let's just assume that in, in this particular case that we have somebody who has a low sodium, say, you know, less than 135. So let's make our arbitrary patient have a sodium of 130, and they have an osmolality of 300, normal. Normal being between 280 and 320. Things that can cause that are pseudohyponatremia, and there are things that can cause that. Hyperglycemia is one of them, but typically when a patient is hyperglycemic, remember glucose is an osmotically active 
molecule. So they typically won't have a normal uh, osmolality. But things such as hyperlipidemia, uh, somebody's got very high triglycerides, um, uh, hyperproteinemia uh, will also cause a pseudohyponatremia. And we said glucose will also cause a pseudohyponatremia. What's going on there? Well, again, in a situation of somebody with hyperglycemia, with a remarkably elevated um, uh, blood glucose level, glucose is a molecule, therefore glucose is in solution, uh, therefore it is osmotically active. As it is osmotically active, it's pulling more water into that particular volume, and therefore by doing so, it's going to decrease the concentration of any sodium that's going to be contained within that same unit of volume, and that's how you get pseudohyponatremia. Now, if you measure, uh, and, and typically though for hyperglycemia-causing um, um, pseudohyponatremia, you'll see an elevated serum osmolality. So your serum osms here will be greater than 320. Uh, hypertonic sodium-free solutions. I'll say that again. Hypertonic sodium-free solutions can also cause hyponatremia. Well, what's perhaps the most common hypertonic sodium-free solution that could be used in, say, a trauma ICU or a neurocritical care unit would typically be mannitol. So again, if you're giving somebody mannitol, they have elevated, man elevated osmolalities uh, and a depressed sodium. The depressed sodium is a pseudohyponatremia because of the co-administration of the mannitol. Now, if somebody has an osmolality of, say, less than 280, so they have a low sodium level, low osmolality level, then you've got to go and you've got to get the urine sodium. If their urine sodium is, say, less than 20 millimoles per liter, you're probably dealing with something like a primary polydipsia. But if their urine sodium is greater than 20 millimoles per liter, then you've got to go and look at their volume status. You can see where this gets reasonably complicated. Um, and when you look at their volume status, well, what can somebody's volume status be? Well, they can be euvolemic, meaning that their volume status is normal. They can be hypervolemic, meaning what? That they have too much fluid on board. Or they could even be hypovolemic, meaning that they don't have enough fluid on board. Uh, and I know that some of you are going to send me emails because you said, you know, I, we really want to talk on, on what do you mean by the fluid status and fluid shifts. And, and that is coming, I promise you. Um, but again, keep in mind, we're talking about hyponatremia. We're talking about a low sodium. And now I'm talking about people who could be hypovolemic. And this is an important distinction to make because I think a lot of times uh, when I'm dealing with the residents and, and trying to teach is that it's an immediate assumption that just because somebody is hyponatremic, people will then immediately jump to the conclusion that then, therefore, they have too much volume, that they are hypervolemic, and therefore uh, we need to, to do some water restrictions or diuretics. And that's not necessarily the case. So let's go through this algorithm again. You have a sodium, say, of, a, of less than 135. We've checked the osmolality. It's either high, which would be something like glucose, hyperglycemia, or mannitol. The osmolality could be normal between 280 and 320, and that may be a pseudohyponatremia from triglycerides or proteinemia or something like that. Or they have a low osmolality. And we'd really expect somebody to have a low osmolality. Um, and then we go and we get the urine osms, and if their urine osms are less than 20, they probably have something like primary polydipsia. If their urine sodium is greater than 20, then we need to do the physical exam and kind of correlate what's their volume status. So if they're, say, hypervolemic, they look like they're volume overloaded, it could be cirrhosis, 
It could be congestive heart failure, or it could be nephrotic syndrome. And that seems, if you've got some clinical background, seems to make sense. And if you've if you put your memory, if you've taken care of liver transplant patients or people who are on the hepatology service, you can almost draw a picture of a, somebody who you've seen who's got a sodium in the 120s, is a chronic developing a hyponatremia, and they're cirrhotic. Other condition, again, would be something like cirrhosis or nephrotic syndrome. If they look like they're euvolemic, they can have SIADH, which is syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone. Uh, adrenal insufficiency, again, will have a hyponatremia. That's a classic question that gets asked a lot is, you know, what are the electrolyte abnormalities of somebody who has adrenal insufficiency? Is typically they have a hyponatremia and a hyperkalemia and a hypoglycemia. Hypothyroidism will be another situation. So within that euvolemic situation, we're looking kind of at an endocrine basket there of SIADH, um, uh, hypothyroidism and adrenal insufficiency. And then you've got the hypovolemic one. And the hypovolemic one is, is a little more interesting because this is the one that I think people are a little bit recalcitrant to get to. You could have cerebral salt wasting syndrome, um, diarrhea, and diuretics. So those are going to cause you really to, to be hypovolemic and literally pee out your sodium. And I'll be honest, these distinctions are actually hard to make. Um, and one of the things that I, I, I think it's, it's sometimes, if you can commit this kind of thing to memory, that's great. Um, uh, or perhaps in my case is, is that, you know, it's not that I commit all these things to memory, but I know that there's this algorithm out there and I know that I can have somebody who has all these things going on. And so I should go to the book or go to a website and, and look and see what is the algorithm that differentiate these different conditions. Now, cerebral salt wasting, it's not going to be something that you see typically in a, uh, a typical med surge ICU or in the world I live in, like a burn intensive care unit. But if you're doing a lot of head trauma or you're working in their own intensive care unit, that's going to be certainly more common. Now, um, cerebral salt wasting syndrome actually looks like a lot like SIADH or syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone, except when you actually look at the urine sodium. Because when you look at the urine sodium, um, they're just really just dumping uh, a lot of salt in the case of cerebral salt wasting. So when you get urinary sodium, their sodium is going to be way over 100. Where in SIEDH, they're going to have you know, a sodium that's going to be greater than 20, but not the levels you're going to see with cerebral salt wasting. The treatment of hyponatremia, or severe hyponatremia, certainly one that's going to cause alteration of metal status and be potentially life-threatening, is going to really depend on how rapid the condition developed. As a general rule in critical care, I kind of will teach the residents and fellows that things that develop quickly require quick treatment, and things that develop slowly or insidiously typically require a slower treatment. A pneumothorax will develop in a matter of seconds, perhaps minutes, and as a result, it needs to be treated rapidly over a period of seconds or minutes. A condition that uh, develops chronically over a period, not really chronically, but you know, more insidiously over a period of, say, days, weeks, and sometimes even months, it's really not appropriate to try to correct that condition over a series of maybe four or five hours. In fact, it's inappropriate. You may actually harm the patient in doing so. In the situation of an acute development 
of hyponatremia, one that develops, say, over 24 to 48 hours. A typical good rule of thumb is that the sodium should not be really corrected at a rate that exceeds 1 to 2 milliequivalents per liter per hour, or typically less than 12 milliequivalents per liter per day. And that's typically what I'll target, because if you're shooting for, say, um, uh, 12 milliequivalents over a 24-hour period, it gives you some margin of safety. Uh, and if you start to correct it too fast, you're still uh, within what's considered uh, a safe and appropriate within, and within the standard of care. Now, if you take your patient who developed this chronically because of something like cirrhosis or congestive heart failure, again, things that happen slowly need to be corrected slowly. And therefore, in that case, you should correct this, the hyponatremia at a much slower rate, uh, say a correction rate of like 0.5 milliequivalents per liter per hour, or say less than 8 milliequivalents uh, of um, sodium per day. Now the treatment begins to get interesting because when patients who have hyponatremic encephalopathy or ultramelocytes, passive therapy in the form of water restriction is really never appropriate. Most of these patients, or a good number of these patients, are going to have some respiratory insufficiency. Uh, and, that, and if they don't, it can develop at any time. And uh, therefore, you could have resultant brain injury by doing that. In the past, there's been some suggestion that possible brain damage from improper therapy uh, of hyponatremia. However, it's been difficult to really document evidence of brain injury caused by hypertonic saline therapy for uh, a hyponatremic uh, encephalopathy. Initial treatment for these patients may uh, be the development or the initiation of uh, fluid resuscitation in the form of giving the patient saline or Ringer's lactate or plasmolite. Now again, this seems a little bit counterintuitive because most people think, well, if I'm hyponatremic, I'm in volume overload, and, and as we've said, that's not really the case. Um, hypertonic saline, or 3% saline, uh, can be administered, uh, and it can be administered at a rate to maintain gradual improvement in the serum sodium. Uh, the in initial recommended infusion rate for hypertonic saline is basically the body weight in kilograms uh, multiplied by the uh, desired increase in sodium per hour. So if you take a 70 kilogram individual and we say that we want to increase it, say, by 0.5 um, milliequivalents, uh, the sodium increased by 0.5 milliequivalents per hour, that would be roughly our, 12, our targeted 12 milliequivalents increase of sodium over a 24-hour period. So 70 times 0.5 would give you a, a infusion rate of hypertonic saline at 35 cc's per hour. Pretty straightforward. Certainly easier than calculating something like dopamine or milrinone or any of the other vasopressors that we use, vasopressors or inotropes that we use on a daily basis. Now, one other option to use if hypertonic saline isn't uh, immediately available is, is the consideration of uh, using hypertonic mannitol, uh, roughly 50 to 60 grams. Um, um, uh, or using the sodium bicarbonate. Um, sodium bicarbonate is also reasonably hypertonic, and, and this may be a good uh, bridge therapy because I'm sure that hypertonic uh, saline is, is something that's going to take some time to actually get in the uh, ICU. And you can administer the mannitol or bicarbonate um, uh, immediately a dose to raise the plasma osmolality about 8 to 10 milliosmoles per kilo. So again, something uh, that w is, should be readily available in, in most ICUs is typically the sodium bicarbonate. 
one thing I typically like to do is to calculate your total serum deficit, and you really should um, continue with your hypertonic saline until you've increased you know, your uh, sodium level up by 20 to 25, uh, or the uh, uh, serum sodium is at about a level of, say, 125 to about 132, and at that time, you can discontinue uh, the hypertonic saline infusion. Obviously, it, because of the types of symptoms we said, and we've talked about how these patients can have respiratory embarrassment, but they can also have uh, problems with seizures, uh, they should be um, uh, placed in an environment, namely an intensive care unit, where uh, control of the airway and short matter by uh, oral tracheal intubation and control of their seizures uh, and even mechanical ventilation uh, should be immediately available. So this is not something you really want to be managing. Uh, with a sodium level of, say, 120 uh, in a step-down unit or on a, a general med surge floor. Now, the patient who has chronic hyponatremia, um, for instance, you know, the cirrhotic that we mentioned who lives with a sodium level, say, perhaps 120 to 125, isn't something that's probably going to impact this as much in the intensive care unit, but if we are managing those patients uh, or seeing them in our practice, therapy for the chronic hyponatremia uh, is usually a fluid restriction, um, and the initial recommendation for fluid restriction is trying to keep the fluid for less than a liter per day. Um, And if this isn't enough, then you need to consider the addition of loop diuretics to, again, try to cause what we call a naturesis or the, the, the urinating out of the sodium. Uh, again, that may be necessary to kind of bring the serum sodium level back into check. The most feared complication um, of the treatment of hyponatremia is a condition that is in the past called central pontine myelinolysis. Central pontine myelinolysis. And as the word that I keep slaughtering their myelinolysis implies is that it is a lysis or breakdown of the myelin uh, and it typically affects the spinal cord uh, but it can affect all nerves in the central and peripheral nervous system. It's caused what uh, is believed to be caused by a, um, a complement-mediated uh, oligodendrocyte toxicity. And symptoms include dysarthrias, dysphagia, spastic per- uh, paraparesis, quadriparesis, lethargy, and seizures and coma. It at first will appear about two to six days following the onset of hyponatremia treatment. Uh, alcoholics with chronic malnutrition, premenopausal women, elderly women on thiazide diuretics, Patients with concomitant hypokalemia and burn patients seem to be at higher risk for the development of this uh, particular complication. You've been listening to the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Thanks for downloading and listening. We also have other podcasts that are available on the internet and through iTunes. Uh, pharmacology for the pre-hospital professional. Pharmacology uh, taught in case uh, scenario form. Uh, aimed for an audience of pre-hospital providers such as EMTs, paramedics, and in Europe, our ambulance physicians. Also, we can listen to PHTLS Podcast, a podcast orchestrated uh, by myself in cooperation with the Pre-Hospital Trauma Life Support Program. Thank you. Have a nice day. Thanks for downloading and listening. 